0: Welcome to the Health Tech Invest Podcast, powered by Nutera Ventures, your guide to healthcare investing. Join us as we explore interviews with pioneering entrepreneurs, investors, and innovative leaders, helping you spark innovation in the world of venture capital investing. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Clues from the Health Tech Invest Podcast. I've got an exciting guest for you all today. His name is Sam Reynolds, and he is the Senior Director of Healthcare Strategy and Transactions at ENY Parthenon. Sam, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. It's great. Summer's here in Chicago. We are in the afternoon now, but as I get my cold brew ready, really appreciate you for for joining. Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what got you into the healthcare space.
1: I started out as an industry person. I spent 10 years working in higher ed. I have a master's degree in higher ed. Then I spent another 10 years working in healthcare in between there, did some consulting at a couple of firms, Deloitte, a smaller firm in Chicago, Healthcare Futures, which doesn't exist anymore. Actually, they got bought by private equity. And then, you know, I never saw myself as somebody who was going to be a you know full-time consultant long-term. But I was at the AMA. My last job before UI was at the AMA. I was director of corporate strategy there. And I got a really great opportunity. They were kind of restarting a transactions health group at EY. One of my friends who I would worked with at Deloitte previously was the starting partner for the group. And he said, hey, come over here. Let's do something interesting. And I was actually the first person that they hired outside of the firm. For that group. And it's been great. I mean, EY is a phenomenal company. I've had a ton of opportunities. I wasn't a real deal guy, frankly, before that. I mean, I'd done stuff, but like nothing like you, you know, I was like, had done a little bit of stuff. And then, you know, I've kind of become that. My focus really at EY is mostly academic health organizations, because, you know, that's where my industry background is. So it makes sense for me. So that's really where I spend most of my time. I know a lot about the physician world, because I worked in the physician world for 10 years. So that's me.
0: Well, what's incredible about your background. And I've had the great privilege of knowing you for almost over a decade now. And I know that you started as an academic, right? And you made sort of the transition to management consulting or transaction consulting. And now you're sort of dedicated in the healthcare space. And I like that bridge. You're sort of on the academic medical center side. But tell us a little bit about what motivated you to leave academia. I feel like that's a really cool story. You know I mean, look, it,
1: I mean, Money is a big part of it, right? But at the end of the day, I mean, right? But that's not the full story. I really liked academia. I could see myself going back to it. In truth, as you know, you know, a lot of the like high-end business work, like venture capital, private equity, investment banking, consulting, in many ways is like academia. It's very intellectual. A lot of people are really based their careers on being individual contributors for the most part. Teams are typically small. So it's not unlike academia. For me, though... Probably the reason I left was maybe two. One, you need to have a PhD if you want to move up in academia. I did not see myself. I moved to Cornell to get a PhD, and then when I was there, I was like, I cannot live. It's upstate New York, Milnor. Like I cannot <laughs> live here for eight years. Like that's just no way. So I said, okay, you know, but I want to get a degree out of it. MBA seemed like the right thing to do. I'm a good test taker, so I was able to get into the school. So one, I didn't ever see myself toughing it out to get a doctor. My wife's getting one now. She's been in her PhD program for like a decade. I mean, it's just ridiculous. She's just about to finish up. Yeah. And she's getting a nurse practitioner too. Just about to finish up that too. So anyway, but the second reason was I was not positioned very well. It's kind of like, business it's anything you know you start out in a function and you kind of move up through that function like you start in HR and business you're going to be in HR right you start out in finance you can move from one function to another but it's not easy to do that's tough to do gets tougher to do as you get older you and i've been able to do that kind of i feel like but it's not common i was in student services and I just didn't see myself being a dean of students. I mean, that's really what it comes down. To. I liked it when I was young. When I got older, it just wasn't very interesting. I was like, okay, get this MBA, see what I can do. And then, you know, I had a family connection and got me into healthcare and I loved it. I'm like, man, this is what I want to do. This is the future, you know? So it was the right decision.
0: Yeah, I mean, Sam, you are one of the smartest guys I know in the industry. And it's obviously the industry is better for folks like yourself, right? But based on what you're seeing in terms of hot trends, right? What are some of the things you're seeing that are occurring in the healthcare space that are advancing the industry, but kind of from more you sit? So
1: I'm obviously going to come at it from a lens of provider delivery network and some of the payer stuff too. I've actually dipped my toe in some of the payer. I mean, it's just everything's converging. You kind of have to. So that's my lens. So I start with that. You know, I think you ask this question to a lot of people. They're going to say, oh, I'm excited about, you know, big Fortune 50 companies, big technology companies getting into healthcare." Oh, I'm excited about, um, you know, but we don't really know what that looks like. And I'm far enough along in my career that I've seen enough things and I'm like, I'm seeing like how much time I have left. I don't necessarily believe that some of these big organizations are going to get in the business in a meaningful way for the rest of my career. They've been saying this for years. I've yet to see it. The delivery side is so complicated. It's mostly run by the government. People don't realize that. I mean, most of our insurance system is, if you add all of it up, it's like we have government insurance. I mean, it's basic fact. So that does not really excite me that much, to be honest. What does excite me is maybe two things. One is, healthcare organizations really thinking about changing their operating model. And I've written some stuff about this. i published some stuff about this. So it's really about joint ventures that you wouldn't think of. And what I mean by that is like historically, for health systems to outsource their revenue cycle, outsource the cafeteria function, outsource trap. like that's common. Everybody does that, right? It's not sure. a big deal. Even taking some of your finance function, like sending it off to the Philippines. Again, that's not, I don't feel like that's like, to me, very exciting. What is exciting is bringing in a corporate partner to run your ER, run your cardiology service line, run your orthopedic service line, to get into a three-way joint venture with community physicians on an ASC. It's a mentality to me that is like, we saw this decades ago in the hotel business, which you know I was in Cornell. I took classes to hotel school there because it was basically their business school at that time for undergrads. And one of the things that fascinated me that I had no clue about, most people don't realize this like Marriott, they don't own anything. They don't own hotels. They run hotels. They're a management company, they're operators. So, you know, you think about what is a hospital real? What is their real true. Say, well, it's running an acute care center. That's really what they're the best at. They have ASCs, they have ambulatory networks, they've got docs, they've got all this other stuff. What they're really good at, and if you take an AMC, what are they really good at? Well, they're really good at research and teaching and they're really good, again, at doing like really complex stuff with patients in acute centers. Basically managing length of stay in hospital beds. End of story. Everything else outside of that can be considered to be spun off into a joint venture with somebody else who knows it better. And I'm telling you, Tom, we've seen it in markets. It's not like a huge thing, but we have seen it. We've seen it work very successfully. I will tell you to me, one of the best examples that is actually somewhat common now is PT. Like the difference between what a PT operator, outside PT operator, and most, most, not all, but most hotel operators in profitability, it's not comparable. It's not comparable. That's all they do. And they're owned by private equity. And we know what that means. So they know how to run things. They have Harvard educated people that know how to run things. That's one, I'd say. So that's one. So one is like these exciting changes at the point of service operating model. Like through
0: practical joint ventures transactions that are value added that are helping hospitals, let them focus on their core business that generates profitability, and then partner with someone else that has that competency to spin off, spin off and do other things.
1: And we're seeing it like urgent care is really common. You're seeing that all over the place. I think that's less exciting because it's older, but like doing it on like big time service lines, like profitable, like cardiac, like that to me is, I mean, of course it also takes a sea change in mentality, which some have and some don't. The second part of that to me, number two Mm -hmm. is, providers really taking going after insurance capabilities commercial insurance capabilities okay. seriously. Okay. And I think the reason you're seeing that now is because Medicare Advantage is so profitable. Medicare Advantage yes. is it's just so profitable. And you know, at the end of the day, I mean the thing that I heard from yeah, my one of my cousins works for Advocate, he's big time value-based care guy, knows all this stuff. So we were talking about MA and he's like he talks to CMS. He's like you realize yeah they want everybody in MA, like 95%. They're always going to be something, but they want everybody in the MA, the government in like 10 years. So there's still, I mean, most of these markets are like, I don't know, between 50 and 60. If it's a good market, it's like between 50 and 60% penetrated. So I mean, there's a lot of opportunity there. And recently, I was on a project with an academic organization, wanted us to take a look at going into an MA plan and what that would mean to them and all this other stuff. And like, when I started in this business, I mean, when you and I started in this business, That would have just never would have even conceived of that. That an <laughs> academic organization would want to go after an insurance plan. What it says to me, it's a sign. There are some that do this very well. Kaiser and some others. This Kaiser-Geisinger thing is another... Crazy thing, it's exciting people, but you never really saw penetrate all the markets. You haven't really seen a lot of them. A lot of them, the health plan is kind of like an afterthought. But this is real, and we're having a lot of conversations with the academic work because that's where I'm at, right? We're having these conversations. We want to go into MA, or we already have a plan. We want to make it better. We want to figure the, the one other conversation out with another academic organization. It's one of our clients, and they said, like, look, we've got this plan. It's kind of been this, like, oh, whatever. But we actually want to figure it out right now. We want to figure this out. We want, and at the end of the day. This artificial delineation between payer and provider, they've been saying this for years, but what I'm saying, my point is it's real now. It is going away. It's real. So those are the things I'm excited about.
0: So I want to riff on your MA theme, right? So that's something we're noticing in my portfolio. So I'm I'm an investor in, in a company called Dispatch Health, or our fund is Investor Dispatch Health. And that company is, it's all about transitioning care into the home. So it's empowering hospitals to shift services into the home because of provider shortages and because the economics for certain services don't really make sense in the hospital. They make more sense in the home.
1: Deeper, sure. Um,
0: And it's better for the patient, obviously, right? And so one of the things we're seeing is I'm on the board of the companies we invest in and, and we talk about MA a lot. But what you're talking about is interesting. We talk about MA because we we also think it's profitable because it generates better reimbursement. But when you talk about MA profitability, so a two-part question, what do you mean by MA is profitable? And then B, what is an academic medical center going into an MA plan actually constitute? What is that Does that mean a convergence of payer and provider or is that something else?
1: So by profitable, I mean managing patients. To, I mean, look, MA is the only example Real example, real multiple like market example of whatever value-based care is, population health actually working. Working, okay. It is gotcha. the only example of that actually working. Gotcha. Gotcha. So if you know how to do that well, and now look, we both know too that it's a lot about coding. But the government's coming down on it. That's not going to be there forever, right? So if they pull the coding, if they pull a lot of this risk scoring away. Which mm-hmm. is giving some folks some advantage. You know, if you're a Humana or you're one of these big, you know, you know how to do that. I mean, they don't, you know. But once they pull that away, what's going to be left is how you manage the patient, mm-hmm. and that's an expertise that a provider has. I mean, they've been doing population L FQAs, all this stuff for years. I mean, that's for years, and it hasn't been successful from a financial point of view. I mean, question mark, you know? But but with MA, it is. I think to answer your second question, what it means is a organization. It can be in a lot of different forms. Mm -hmm. What I would argue is probably the best form it's in is a joint venture with an existing MA plan. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to the joint ventures, it's just like I talked about before. And with an existing MA plan that already has these capabilities and you're bringing the clinical stuff. Like Ah, you're bringing... Got it. Right? And and brand. I mean, if you're an academic, you're a brand. You have a brand. So the
0: academic brings the clinical expertise... The MA plan brings the, obviously the financial backing, but also the analytics, the information about the patient, and then the pricing model, et cetera.
1: Or just the whole operating model. I mean, yeah. I mean, these yeah. organizations—they have no idea how to run a health plan. They don't know what you know. Again, they've got their toe in the water. There are some capabilities that cross. There are actually many capabilities that cross. Okay. You know, all the back, all, a lot of the back office stuff. But you know, like, but but you know, the closer you get to real, you know, the front office stuff, it's mostly new to them. I mean, they don't know how to do UM or you know, all that kind of stuff. So anyway.
0: was so this a lot like alignment healthcare? Are you familiar with alignment healthcare out of Southern California? Yeah.
1: Tell me about it. I'm not.
0: Well, that's what they do. That Their model is kind of JV as a service, right? So they oh. approach academic medical centers, they approach the UC systems, and that's what they do. They essentially, they are an MA plan, and then they approach hospital systems to predominantly AMCs to construct these MA, JVs. So
1: I'll take you a step further. I don't know the name of the organization. They are consulting firm. And even if I did, I pray. But they have a whole portfolio. Okay. So there's a group, an entire portfolio across the operating model, yeah. right? Of potential JV partners, revenue cycle, finance, supply chain, on and on, patient access, everything you could possibly think of. And by the way, patient access, that's a lot like on the operating model. Like that's a lot. There's a lot of work in that right now. Which is, which, you know, it's kind of goes along the line. I mean, you can't run a plan unless you have good access. I mean, right. So a lot of them don't. They have to work on that. But anyway, they will say, okay, they interact with the C suite and they will say, okay, they'll take one of these like tile charts as your entire operating front back office operating model, you know, at the L2 level and say, okay, let's talk about each one of these boxes. Let's talk about KPIs in each one of these boxes and let's talk about mission, obviously, and your mission and what you feel like you need to keep. Because, you know, a part of this, too, is like in a lot of places, not urban as, as much, but in these suburban and rural environments, they're the biggest employer in town. You start outsourcing, you, know, you send all this stuff to the Philippines, yeah. you're going to decimate the town. you know. So, so I mean, <laughs> so there's a mission component to this, too, right? It's not just, you know, we're not draconian. I mean, this is so and then they will make decisions about which pieces they want to move and which pieces they don't want to move. Again, to me, the exciting stuff is the front office stuff, the back office. I mean, we as a firm, private equity, we've been doing that for years. And, you know, you buy a platform, you go off, you buy a bunch of other crap, and then you wipe the platform you don't like, you bring it, you know, it's simple stuff. So anyway, yeah. yeah.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. Just to kind of change things up, you know, kind of a, I would say, stereotypical question that you probably get a lot on panels, but the pandemic, right? I know how it impacted my business. We Sort sort of slowed down deal flow for a temporary period of time. And then deal flow went back up and virtual care blew up. That's what happened. And we had a, I would say, overinflated evaluation for some period of time. And now that's deflated now. So from the context of where you sit in your organization and the transactions you do, how have you been impacted by the pandemic, both during and then after?
1: So it's interesting. We say this all the time in our business, the provider side of the business Is very much counter-cyclical. When the pandemic started, I was busier than I've ever been the entire time I've been with the firm. Through the pandemic, we were busy. And then now consulting is kind of, you know, it's things are slower now. I mean, that's well known. I mean, you know, that's out in the press and stuff. But again, we are selling more provider work than we ever have the whole time I've been with the company. And it's cost reduction. What I think, what I believe is that a lot of these organizations, the providers were floating on COVID. Mo- they got COVID money from the government. Mm-hmm. They were able to make it over that. That money's kind of going away. And as you say, the operating model, and this is kind of a theme in what we're talking about, You know, the operating model has changed. It has come back to a degree. I mean, and what I mean by that is Everybody's not doing virtual visits. I mean, it's like 20%. You know, it's not what it was. But it has permanently changed. And so, you know this as well as I, to be a cute business, unless you're an academic doing cancer, or, you know, like it's not, Like, that's just going away. I mean, I mean, like, again, these big, big community hospital that one of my cousins works at, they're not community, they're a gigantic hospital. But I mean, their goal is to keep people out of the hospital. So, I mean, that's just going to continue. All right. I mean, it's only going to be really sick people that are going to be in the hospital. I mean, you're talking about stuff at home. I mean, I had my wife's father before he died was on dialysis for like two years. They lived with us. And, you know, you asked that guy whether he would do dialysis in the home, whether you want to go to a hospital. I mean, he could. He had to go to the hospital because he was really sick. But who the heck wants to go? I mean, I mean the guy's whole life was in the hospital, right? Sure. So, I mean, again, I think that's for our business. Now, if you go broadly across transactions, you know this. Again, I don't have to tell you this. I'm sure other guests are saying the same thing. I mean, look, private equity investments down. It's because the interest rate. I mean, it's sure. It's yeah, yeah. You guys are sitting on the sidelines. That's it. And you'll wait yeah. until... The- you know, the government decides. I'd like to refinance my house. I'm not going to do that. I mean, you know, it's, right. it's just simple. It's common sense. I do think we a you know, debt investors
0: hard. In- if you're investing equity, though, it's a good time. There's a it's a oh, it? okay. market. You know, valuations are down, right? So there's there's some benefit to it. But you're right. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of folks sitting on the sideline to wait wait until the dust settles, so to speak.
1: You know, way more about this than I do, but but yeah, I, I, I'm just seeing you know, the highest mortgage rates that I can, you (laughs) know. Yeah. What? All right.
0: It's a really good point. We were talking a little bit about home care and you said something early on about hospitals focusing on their core business and then using creative transactions to maybe spin certain capabilities out. And that kind of like leads me to think that home care could be fair game for that, right? Because when I think about the hospital's existing business model, Taking MA aside, yeah, the yeah. hospital's existing business model is not conducive to home care. So, what's your kind of thought process? What do hospitals need to do to transition more care into the home? Because we see that as a growing trend, and it'd be really interesting to get your perspective on it. I think, you know, I'm just going
1: to go back to any decision you make like this with your operating model. If you say, okay, I want to make a change to my operating model, it's build by borrow. I mean, that's common sense, right? I mean, that's, that's again, I'm sure every one of your guests said that to you. You know that. In my head, I have a bent, and always have in my career before I ever got, I mean, I was in corporate strategy before this. And, you know, when I was in corporate strategy and we wanted to bring, when I was at the AMA and we wanted to bring a capability into our group, into the strategy group, I was always bent towards buy, overbuild. It's faster. You can hold people more accountable. You know, that you bring some, I mean, we live in a hyper-specialized world. And so, anyway, I would say, go out and find somebody, which is why you should invest in a same purpose. Yes. but for sure. I mean, no, I mean look, man, I, you know one of the guys that you and I used to work with, I know now is working on one of these projects for a, a big you know private equity shop, and they're doing it. I mean, they're taking a piece of the operating model with I mean the, I, these things are all over the place, I mean that they really are. And when you got private equity, that has big portfolios of these things. Mm-hmm. they're just kind of in their nascent stage. I mean, they don't have a ton of clients. They don't have a huge client base. They're just trying to get into a couple of things. Like that's when you know, because I believe this, having worked with guys like you and venture and stuff. I mean, that's where the, look, the smartest people in business are gonna go where the money is. That's, that's where right. the money is. So when those guys are making those decisions, that's when he's okay, wait a second, maybe I can get ahead of that. Because business is all about, you know, I mean, business is all about predicting the future. It's all about predicting the future and having the will to put your resources on future bets. I and mean, that's all it is. That's all this is, yeah. right? And get people behind your will to, to make those bets. That's it. So when I look, I look at these private equity shops, you know, and I think, okay, they're making these bets. That's the bet. If I'm a guy in corporate,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: that I make these bets. I can tell you again, another client of ours, chief strategy officer that is very well known in big time, was a big time, you know, we be partner. And now he runs strategy for a very large health system. And this guy's just going like he takes that strategy. He is going around, they've given him the money, they've given him the leverage. He's just going around buying stuff and he's making a lot of success. And frankly, you know, these guys want to make changes in the community and all this other stuff. That's how you do it. And I know it's controversial, you know, private equity sometimes have the best reputation and you're dealing with a nonprofit, you know, so it's like oil and water to a degree. (laughs) But if you can bridge that cultural gap, I think, like if you're thinking, you're sitting in the CEO suite, you're sitting in the CEO chair and you're like, look, if I can bring in a couple of really skilled people to bridge the gap between private equity and our nonprofit world, man, you can really do something. I'm watching it happen. Like the big, really like forward-thinking guys are doing that.
0: Awesome. So we talked a little bit about educating me a little bit about alternative service models. We talked about MA plans, which is a really fascinating space to me. What about technology enablement? So for my seat, I get approached a lot by entrepreneurs that are building the next revolutionary AI product, right? And they're pitching to me as, going to solve all of the needs of a hospital. From where you sit, what's your thought process around, what is the impact that artificial intelligence or, you know, call it software enablement, what value add can it bring to the health system ecosystem or to the payer ecosystem for that matter?
1: Good question. And I can tell you, you know, if I'm thinking about, I'm not a tech guy, but if I'm thinking about this and I'm having conversations about this with people, which I am. Yeah. You know that it's big. Like you doing that is like, whatever. But the (laughs) fact that I'm doing that, like, we are. Like, (laughs) sure. I have a friend, a very good friend of mine, very successful. He's an executive, C-level executive at, they're an AI company. Is it Mm that, so they're doing this stuff. Sure. He's a tech guy, but AI is new to him. He's done a bunch of other tech. You know, he's, he's from West Coast or lives out there. He is a very even keeled dude. Like he's not the kind of guy that gets all like crazy about stuff. He called me up about a month ago and said, this AI stuff is going to be as big as the Gutenberg printing press to our society. That's exactly what he said. And I'm telling exactly. you, this is a guy that I... So I started doing some investigation myself. So I'm like, okay, robots are going to take over the world and kill us. But, <laughs> right? But it's a possibility. I mean, I mean, there's people that think that. And I don't yeah. think who knows. What I think is that, to me, the applications are... For health, I think it's yet... To be i think health's trying to figure it out but what i see is the applications to cancer i mean interesting so think about all the things that we've solved right you've yeah. solved a lot of types of cancer through screening we've solved heart disease we've solved i mean as long as you know if you do the right thing solve basically diabetes they could i mean not solve it, but there's you could not have it if you're you know We've solved all these like big problems that were are Heart, I think to me, like high blood pressure is probably the biggest one. I mean, heart attacks used to kill all kinds of people. And I get, you take a blood pressure pill and you're fine, right? My point is, is that to me, cancer is really the next, like, this is what AI is going to be for like me and you. What we're going to see is AI is going to re- solve cancer if it can be solved. And what I think too is, is that this immunotherapy stuff, Yeah, again, I'm not a scientist, but- the whole idea of training the immune system to go after. I mean, that's the answer, right? That's the Holy Grail to, to me and my head. I mean, and I've talked to a couple of docs about it. Again, I'm not a scientist, but I think what AI does is it accelerates that stuff. It just accelerates. No question. It accelerates it. And yeah. in two knows, 10 years, maybe you'll, you know, you'll take a, you get, you get lung cancer, you take a shot, gone.
0: You know, it's gone. Yeah. Look, you know, man.
1: To me, that's what's exciting. I mean, the, you know, the, the the business side of it, whatever. I mean, okay, it's going to enable finance functions to be like a third of the size. Is there, you know, like the back office stuff. And, you know, all that that stuff doesn't really excite me. The payers will be able to clip a bunch of uh, actuaries. That just doesn't excite me. I mean, it's the clinical side that really excites me.
0: I mean, look, the is out there, right? The data's out there. And I think AI is the next chapter of that cycle. How do you recommend health systems get more involved in AI though? What's the modus operandi there? I would go back to what
1: I said before about Going out and hiring these really, like somebody like you, You go out and they have to pay. Yeah, You know, go out and pay to get somebody like you to work in their strategy function, be chief strategy. You know, like you see organizations, in in hospital organizations, to me, there's two types of strategy functions. There's the type of strategy function that hires guys like you, takes it seriously, puts money in it, throws money at it, Mm -hmm. gives them a fund to invest, and is very serious about it. Right. There's another type where the people are basically moving up through the company. They've been there for years. You know, it's just basically another place to put somebody who's been there for a long time and reward them for their good work. You know, to me, you got to decide what kind of organization you want to be. I'm not saying either one is wrong. I'm just saying that if you're the type of organizations I really want to get into AI, you need to be with the former, hiring that, those kinds of people. The other side of that, though, is, you know, if you're an academic organization, it's going to creep in in other ways. I was just with one of our clients yesterday talking to a bunch of PhD researchers and, you know, these people are just brilliant. And the kind of interesting stuff they're doing in some of these hospitals, like, has, like, real effect on people's lives, you know, getting people to walk again. You know, like that
0: kind of, I mean, crazy crap. It's, you know, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. I want to change things up a little bit. I've learned a ton from you, but I wanted to kind of bring it back to something a little bit more personal, maybe, right? So, and this is really tailored around, this could be personal or professional component, but could you give us some context about one of your biggest setbacks and what was the key learning from that experience for our listeners out there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't mind telling people this. Everybody knows me knows this. And I wrote an article about it a long time ago, but in 2008, I was at a, big consulting firm, look at my LinkedIn, you know which one it was. And I got fired. You know, I got clipped. And in that same time period, I was also my personal life. I was engaged to somebody that I had known for a long time and that didn't work out. And so here within a span of a year, I had lost somebody who was very important to me at that time. And this job that was really in many ways was like my dream to work at this, you know, a big, big name company. And that was hard man. That's really, you know, that I went into industry and, and and it ended up being the best thing for me. Because anyway, what I learned there was, one, when you're in hard times, bringing routine and discipline into your life yep, can really help you through it. Every time I got upset, i go straight to the gym. You know, I cut down drinking next to nothing, basically, because I knew, you know, drinking alcohol is a depressant. You know, I didn't need to bring that into my life. I got in great shape and I got through it. The other thing I would say about that, too, is like there were reasons that didn't work out for me. There were skill holes that I had that I needed to fix. I did not know nearly as enough about the business as I needed to to really be an effective business advisor. And I needed to fix those things. So I had like hard skills and knowledge gaps. And so I went into industry. I was in industry for eight years. I worked in organized medicine, as you know, was a CMS contractor, had some great, great, great experiences in that world, especially with the American Medical Association and the great, super smart people that are there. And I learned everything I needed to know. You know, I know a lot about how to run. an. I was on the board of Triple H-C, which is the top ambulatory credentialing body in the world. Sure. So I learned, I was around all these really smart people, learned a ton of stuff. And then when I went back to it, which I, by the way, I, I didn't really think I was going to go back to it. I mean, I went back to it because I needed the money basically. Yeah. I love the AMA. My wife had to stop working. So we were trying to have a second kid; It was just too late at that time. But anyway, I guess what I would say is a lot of organizations right now are letting people go. I've had conversations with folks about that. And what I would say is is that when something like that happens, you have to view it as an opportunity. I did. And I took that opportunity, made myself better. And you know, my career has really accelerated as a result. So
0: that's awesome. No, I really appreciate you sharing that with the listeners because, you know, people don't typically open up about that. So that's huge of you. And oh, yeah. that really is a personal anecdote. I appreciate you sharing. That being said, you're obviously a rock star, as you've sort of pointed out. I mean, your trajectory at E&Y Parthenon has just been uh, at an accelerated pace and you're obviously you've built those skills and you're a rock star. What advice do you have to give to the listeners out there who look at Sam Reynolds and say, I want to be Sam Reynolds. I want to achieve that title, right? I want to be at that level. I'm going to be doing the type of work that Sam Reynolds is doing. What advice do you give people like that? I never thought
1: anybody would say would want to be me, but that's that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. I mean, I, I guess I'm getting old, right? So, yeah, so I mean, all right. But what that's you being priorities? humble, brother. That's you being yeah. humble. Yeah. Appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, I actually. So I looked at you know, I, I gave the, I gave this a lot of thought before we got on because this question in particular. You know, Tom, the best decisions that I have made in my entire life marrying my wife, knowing when I met my wife within an hour that I was going to marry her, buying my house in Chicago, which has been the by far the best investment I've ever made in my life. No question. So i close. All the things my wife and I had did to have our three daughters taking the job at person on which my own father told me, are you sure you can do this? Like, are you? This is a really big time job. Yeah. I have made every one of those decisions based on my instincts. And I am telling you, that when I make decisions based on my instincts, my real instincts, not things that are covered by emotion, like real instincts, like dig deep. Those are always the best decisions. When I make decisions against my instincts, to me, like we were talking about this before, my success is really based on two things. My ability to evaluate risk and my instincts about people. Like that's why I'm successful, bottom line. Mm-hmm. All goes back to me having the ability to listen to my. He was say. Like, Well, you can't really teach anybody that. I mean, I don't believe that. You know, yes, I'm probably closer to that like instinct part of my brain than -hmm. most people are, but it's about listening to yourself. You know, that movie, the movie Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I just watched that. Yeah. Yeah. So so when Joe Cabot
1: at the end, who is played by Lawrence Turney, and I'm telling you, go on Wikipedia and read about this guy. He had like this crazy life. So like crazy life was like this crazy, drunken, fighting guy his whole life. Anyway, at the end of the movie, when he goes in and confronts everybody, and they've got that scene that's basically a copy of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, the three-way standoff, and he says, and and White says, well, how do you know it was born, you don't have any proof? And he's like, I don't need proof when I have instinct. And and I'm telling you, in my life, in my experience, instinct is always superior to logic if you understand it. It always is because human beings have an underlying ability to calculate. We do. And frankly, you know, we'll talk about AI, right? That's what yeah. separates us from computers. It's yeah. the only thing that they're not going to be able to do is they can't replicate our creativity and our instincts and our emotions. So like use that. That's our differentiator. That's what we have. And I have, so, and, and I'll tell you the times I've gone against it, I'm not going to go into that, but the time I've gone against <laughs> my instinct, oh, it's a disaster, right? <laughs> <laughs> So I, I'm telling you, it's that's my advice. Learn how to dig into your instincts. I mean, I know you know this because you invest in companies, you're constantly going on your gut and you've been super successful. You know, I've just seen you go from like graduate from Northwestern to be this like big time guy. And you know, that, you know but you, you can't teach somebody that, but an individual can learn that on their own through a lot of an introspection, I believe.
0: Words to live by. That's cool, man. That's really cool. I mean, look, Sam, I could talk to you all day about this. You're a lovely guest and wonderful person to to learn from and and have conversation with. But, you know, our time is almost up here, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to just kind of like give us your call to action to the listeners and give us a little bit of context about where people can follow your work.
1: Go to my LinkedIn page, Sam Reynolds. Uh, You just type in Sam Reynolds EY in LinkedIn and you'll be able to find me. I am somebody who always. Never turns down a young person who wants to have a conversation with me, wants me to mentor him, wants to, has, wants to know about my company or healthcare or whatever. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that, and this will be my final thing. Business is about relationships. You know, it's about a lot of things, it's about relationships. It's a big part of it. That's why understanding people and is a big part of this. I always 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 had this philosophy of never ever turning people away. Somebody comes to me, whatever, guy that I know, Cornell yeah. graduate, came to me long time ago. Wanted some mentorship. I mentored him for a long time. He went and worked for a huge technology company and then was in corporate strategy. And long story short, I end up working with him to bring us into that company. We did a ton of business with them, like millions of dollars. And so that wasn't why I made that relationship. It had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it at all. But what I would say is don't ever think you're like too big or too good or whatever. You know, if you always do the right thing good things will absolutely will come to you. I mean, I mean, but, you know, and you look, I'm not, you see people who are constantly doing the wrong thing. There's a lot of those people, especially in the high ends of business, maybe even mostly. And those people could get by and if they can sleep at night, great. But for me, I want to sleep at night. I always do the right thing. And long-term, it pays back. It just does. So that's what I would say.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Sam, that's wonderful. uh, Wonderful advice to our listeners. Thank you so much for your time. For all you listeners out there, I'm Tom Clues. Thanks for joining us on Health Tech Invest, where we promote great people, great entrepreneurs, and spark great innovation. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for joining us on the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Netera Ventures, your go-to source for healthcare and tech venture investing. For additional information, resources, and ways to connect with us, please visit interaventures.com. Together, let's spark innovation for the future of tech and healthcare investing.